0: Section 15 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5, Henry Moore, Christian Theosophy and Mysticism, Part 1. As the Cambridge movement reached its highest, or at least its most elaborate, intellectual elevation in Cudworth, so it ripened into its finest personal and religious development in Henry Moore. Cudworth is much less interesting than his writings. Moore is far more interesting than any of his. He was a voluminous author. His writings fill several folio volumes. They are in verse as well as prose. They were much read and admired in their day, but they are now well-nigh forgotten. Some of them are hardly any longer readable. Yet Moore himself is at once the most typical and the most vital and interesting of all the Cambridge school. He is the most platonical of the Platonic sect, and at the same time the most genial, natural, and perfect man of them all. We get nearer to him than any of them, and can read more intimately his temper, character, and manners, the lofty and serene beauty of his personality, one of the most exquisite and charming portraits which the whole history of religion and philosophy presents. Moore was born in 1614, three years before Cudworth, at Grantham in Lincolnshire. And we have happily the means of tracing both his external and internal history more familiarly than that of his great colleague. Footnote. In addition to a life by Richard Ward, rector of Ingoldsby, London, 1710 octavo, Moore himself has given us many interesting details of his life in the Prefatio Generalissima, prefixed to his Opera Omnia, published in 1679 and also a general account of the manner and scope of his writings in an apology published in sixteen sixty four ward's life is interesting but vague uncritical and digressive after the manner of the time the second part which was intended to embrace a review of moore's writings and to consider him more particularly as an author was never published the manuscript however was in existence in eighteen forty seven in the possession of john crossley esq of manchester editor of worthington's diary for the chetham society End of footnote. his father was alexander moore esq a gentleman of fair estate and fortune greatly beloved and esteemed by his son who dedicated to him the collection of his philosophical poems in sixteen forty seven he speaks in his dedication of his father's generous openness and veracity and wishes he were a stranger to his blood that he might with a better decorum set out the nobleness of his spirit. He attributes his poetical taste to his father's reading with him, in the winter nights, Spenser's Rhymes, especially that incomparable piece of his, The Fairy Queen, a poem as richly fraught with divine morality as fancy. We gather from the same source that, with all his sense of filial obligation, he had broken away from the old home influences, and chosen his career and opinions for himself apparently his father had wished him to enter upon some active profession as a road to wealth and influence but says the son your early encomiums of learning and philosophy did so fire my credulous youth with the desire of the knowledge of things that your after advertisements how contemptible learning would prove without riches and what a piece of unmannerliness and incivility it would be held to seem wiser than them that are more wealthy and powerful could never yet restrain my mind from her first pursuit nor quicken my attention to the affairs of the world his change of religious opinion was of more importance both my father and uncle and so also my mother he says were all earnest followers of calvin to the almost fourteenth year of his age he was bred up in strict calvinism his tutor as well as his parents being of this persuasion great calvinists he says again but withal very pious and good ones at this age he was sent to eton school not to learn any new precepts or institutes of religion, but for the perfecting of the Greek and Latin tongue. Already, however, he had been the subject of strong religious convictions. Quote, Even in my first childhood, an inward sense of the divine presence was so strong upon my mind that I did then believe there could no deed, word, or thought be hidden from him, nor was I by any others that were older than myself to be otherwise persuaded. Close quote. He has no doubt that this deep religious feeling was an innate sense or notion in him, contrary to some witless and sordid philosophasters of the age, or to the supposition that it was merely extraduce, or by way of propagation, as being born of parents exceeding pious and religious. In such a case, it was inexplicable how he drew not also Calvinism in along with it. So far from doing this, he could never swallow that hard doctrine concerning fate, and no sooner had he gone to Eton than he fell into a violent dispute on the subject with his brother, who had accompanied him and his uncle thither. His uncle, on being informed of his theological precocity and the untoward turn it had taken, chid him very severely, quote, adding menaces withal of correction and a rod for my immature forwardness in philosophizing concerning such matters, Close quote. His religious forwardness, however, was not to be restrained in this manner. The mystery of predestination had got hold of his mind, and so possessed him that, quote, on a certain day, in a ground belonging to Eton College, where the boys used to play and exercise themselves, musing concerning these things with myself, and recalling to my mind the doctrine of Calvin, I did thus seriously and deliberately conclude within myself, viz. If I am one of those that are predestinated into hell, where all things are full of nothing but cursing and blasphemy, yet will I behave myself there patiently and submissively towards God, and if there be any one thing more than another that is acceptable to Him, that will I set myself to do with a sincere heart and to the utmost of my power, being certainly persuaded that if I thus demeaned myself, He would hardly keep me long in that place, which meditation of mine is as firmly fixed in my memory and the very place where I stood as if the thing had been transacted but a day or two ago. Close quote. And as to what concerns the existence of God, he adds, Though in that ground mentioned, walking as my manner was, slowly and with my head on one side, and kicking now and then the stones with my feet, I was wont sometimes with a sort of musical and melancholic murmur to repeat, or rather hum to myself, those verses of Claudian. Oft hath my anxious mind divided stood, whether the gods did mind this lower world, or whether no such ruler, wise and good, we had, and all things here by chance were hurled. Yet that exceeding hail and entire sense of God, which nature herself had planted deeply in me, very easily silenced all such slight and poetical dubitations as these. Personal as these details are, there is nothing egotistical in them. They are naturally and simply told after the manner of the time. Such moods are for the most part left untold. The reserve of after years and many experiences seldom permits the veil to be lifted upon the early secrets of the soul. But Moore, both as a boy and as a man, was singularly transparent in his deepest nature. His communings and ecstasies have not the slightest taint of morbid self-elation. They are the natural carriage of his strangely gifted spirit. From the beginning all things in a manner came flowing to him, and his mind, according to his own saying, was enlightened with a sense of the noblest theories in the morning of his days. His scholarly progress as a boy seems to have been remarkable, although here we have few facts related. His master would be at times in admiration at the exercises that were done by him. His anxious and thoughtful genius showed itself in his work as well as in his meditations, and his varied and profuse scholarship could only have been the fruit of diligent study at Eton as well as afterwards at the University. Having spent about three years at Eton, he was admitted at Christ's College, Cambridge, 1631, just about the time that Milton was leaving it. He was recommended to the care of a tutor both learned and pious, and what he was not a little solicitous about, not at all a Calvinist. Here, he says, he was possessed with a, quote, mighty and almost immoderate thirst after knowledge, especially that which was natural, and above all others, that which was said to dive into the deepest cause of things. Close quote. he immersed himself quote, over head and ears in this study of philosophy, promising himself the most wonderful happiness in the perusal of Aristotle, Cardan, Julius Scaliger, and other philosophers of the greatest note. Close quote. He professes, however, to have got little satisfaction from the reading of such authors. The result of his four years' studies of this kind was that he fell into a sort of scepticism not, as he carefully tells us, regarding the existence of God or the duties of morality, for of these he never had the least doubt, but regarding the origin and end of life. He was puzzled, like many a young dreamer before him, as to the meaning of existence, and what were its shows, and what its substance. He expressed his feelings in a Greek epigram, under the title aporia, which he afterwards himself translated. Quote, no I, nor whence, nor who I am, poor wretch nor yet, O Madness, whither I must go. Lies, night-dreams, empty toys, fear, fatal love, this is my life, I nothing else do see." This unhappy state of mental disturbance lasted until he had taken his bachelor's degree in 1635. After that he fell anew to thinking with himself, quote, whether the knowledge of things was really the supreme felicity of man, or something greater or more divine was or supposing it to be so whether it was to be acquired by such an eagerness and intentness in the reading of authors and contemplating of things or by the purgation of the mind from all sorts of vices whatsoever Close quote. this new train of thought was greatly encouraged if not excited by his study of the quote, platonic writers Mercilius Ficinus, plotinus himself mercurius trismegistus and the mystical divines among whom there was frequent mention made of the purification of the soul and of the purgative course that is previous to the illuminative. Footnote. Vicinus was one of the well-known school of Florentine Platonists who composed the brilliant circle which surrounded the Medici in the fifteenth century. He translated Plato and Plotinus with other Neoplatonic writers and, like Moore himself, sought to amalgamate their theology with Christianity. Trismegistus was an epithet given to the Egyptian Hermes. Numerous philosophical and astrological works bore this name in the early Christian centuries and purported to be written under divine inspiration. They were mostly written at Alexandria by Gnostic Christians or philosophers of the Neoplatonic school, probably in the 4th century of the Christian era. End of footnote. He was greatly fascinated by these writers, and the fascination was one which never left him they opened up a congenial world of thought to his richly meditative mind while their transcendental pietisms exactly met the aspirations of his mystic and enthusiastic spirit but amongst all the writings of this kind there was none so pierced and affected him as that golden little book with which luther is also said to have been wonderfully taken viz theologia germanica something of defect he recognized in this marvelous manual a certain deep melancholy, as also no slight errors in matters of philosophy. But its great lesson of self renunciation aroused and quickened his whole being as it were out of sleep. Henceforth he was quote, most firmly persuaded, not only concerning the existence of God, but also of his absolute both goodness and power, and of his most real will that we should be perfect even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect. Close quote. And so a violent conflict was awakened in him betwixt the divine principle and the animal nature, a conflict which he represents as the very punctum saliens, or first motion of the new life or birth begun in us. As to other performances, he adds, quote, whether of morality or religion arising from mere self-love, let them be as specious or goodly as you please, they are at best but as preparations or the more refined exercises of a sort of theological hobbyism, Close quote. The result was that all Moore's other studies became of no value in comparison with the course of spiritual discipline upon which he now entered. It was his earnest effort in all things to subdue his own will to the divine will, and cherish within him the seed of the divine life. He felt that, quote, the divine seed alone is that which is acceptable unto God, and the sole invincible basis of all true religion, Close quote. His former insatiable desire and thirst after the knowledge of things became almost wholly extinguished. He was, quote, solicitous about nothing so much as a more full union with the divine and celestial principle, the inward flowing wellspring of life eternal, with the most fervent prayers breathing often unto God that he would be pleased thoroughly to set him free from the dark chains and sordid captivity of his own will, close quote and no sooner strangely had he entered upon this course, and his immoderate desire after mere knowledge been allayed, than he began to have a clearer assurance of those very things which he had desired to know. Gradually light as well as peace came to him. Within a few years he got into a most joyous and lucid state of mind, the very antithesis of his former state. As he had described his darkness and embarrassment in an epigram, so now also he describes his relief and satisfaction footnote both epigrams were originally written in greek the latter under the title of euporia as the former under that of aporia they are both found at the end of his philosophical poems end of footnote Quote, i come from heaven am an immortal ray of god o joy and back to god shall go and here sweet love on wings me up doth stay i live i'm sure and joy this life to know night and vain dreams be gone Father of lights, we live as Thou, clad with eternal day. Faith, wisdom, love, fixed joy, free-winged might, this is true life, all else death and decay." Moore's period of skepticism seems to have lasted for three or four years following his graduation. All that we distinctly know is the spiritual character of the rest which he reached, and that its full attainment was marked by the composition of his first philosophical poem i was fully convinced he says a conviction which lies at the basis of all his higher thought that true holiness was the only safe entrance into divine knowledge and not content with expressing his thoughts in the epigram we have already given he afterwards about the beginning of the year sixteen forty comprised his chief speculations and experiences in a pretty full poem called Psychozoia or the life of the soul he had no intention at first of publishing this poem But at length he yielded, as so many have done before and since, to the instigation of some learned and pious friends, who had accidentally come to know of it. It was published accordingly for the first time in 1642, along with another poem of considerable length, entitled Psychathanasia, or the second part of the Song of the Soul, treating of the immortality of souls, especially man's soul. Finally, four other poems on kindred subjects, along with several minor poems were added and the complete collection of philosophical poems appeared in sixteen forty seven when he was thirty three years of age the titles of these four poems which are more or less closely connected with his primary song of the soul may interest the reader one democritus platonisans or an essay upon the infinity of worlds out of platonic principles annexed to this second part of the song of the soul Two. Antipsychopenicia, or the third book of the Song of the Soul, containing a confutation of the sleep of the soul after death. 3. The pre-existency of the soul, an appendix to third part of the Song of the Soul. 4. Antimonopsychia, or the fourth part of the Song of the Soul, containing a confutation of the unity of souls. End of footnote. Moore's poems are now hardly known. They have fallen out of the rank which even the poems of Dunn and Davies maintain, and are not found in any collection. In some respects they form the most singular attempt in literature to turn metaphysics into poetry. Apart from the notes and interpretation general, which he has himself happily furnished, they are barely intelligible. Even with such assistance they are a most intricate and perplexing study. Not only the strain of thought and complexities of Neoplatonic allusion but the involutions and fantasies of the verse itself contribute to this, yet there are here and there not a few genuine gleams both of poetic and spiritual insight, and the mental picture which the poems present is altogether so curious as to reward the patience of a congenial student. No one, unless such a student, animated in some degree by the platonic rage from which they powerfully flow forth, need attempt them. The eye must be profound as well as clear, which would penetrate their deep searching thoughts often renewed. The reader is to expect, as he himself duly warns, quote, no Tyan strain, no light wanton lesbian vein. His is a far nobler function than that of the ordinary poet. Quote, nor ladies loves, nor knights brave martial deeds he wrapped in rolls of hid antiquity. But thinward fountain, and the unseen seeds, from whence are these, and whatso under eye doth fall, or is record in memory, Psyche I'll sing. Psyche, from thee they sprung, O life of time and all alterity, the life of lives instill his nectar strong, my soul tenebriate, while I sing Psyche's song. My task is not to try what's simply true. I only do engage myself to make a fit discovery, give some fair glimpse of Plato's hid philosophy what man alive that hath but common wit when skilful limmer suing his intent shall fairly well portray and wisely hit the true proportion of each lineament and in right colours to the life to paint the fulvid eagle with her sun-bright eye would wexen wroth with inward collar brent cause tis no buzzard or discoloured pie why man i meant it not cease thy fond obloquy so if what's consonant to plato's school which well agrees with learned pythagore Egyptian trismagist and thantique roll of Chaldee wisdom, all which time hath tore, but Plato and deep Plotin do restore. Which is my scope, I sing out lustily. If any twitten me for such strange lore, and me all blameless brand with infamy, God purge that man from fault of foul malignity. The philosophical doctrines of the poems will sufficiently appear as we proceed, for like all his school Moore uses up again and again his fundamental ideas, and the platonic principles, which he turned into song in his early years, were the same which he handled afterwards in various forms of prose. We may give, however, a few further extracts, some of which condense in pregnant fragments the pith of his thought, while others, by a happy chance, attain true poetic form, golden threads of simple thought or feeling, tracing the wasteful woods, the harsh involvements of his verse. Footnote. He did not himself estimate his poetic power highly when the fit of composition was over. A rude confused heap of ashes dead my verses seem, when that celestial flame, that sacred spirit of life's extinguished in my cold breast, then gin I rashly blame my rugged lines, this word is obsolete, that boldly coined, a third too oft doth beat mine humorous ears and a footnote. hence the soul's nature we may plainly see a beam it is of the intellectual sun a ray indeed of that eternity but such a ray as when it first outshone from a free light its shining date begun if then said he the spirit may not be right reason surely we must deem it sense yes sense it is this was my short reply sense upon which holy intelligence and heavenly reason and comely prudence O beauteous branches of that root divine, do springen up through inly experience of God's hid ways, as he doth ope the eyne of our dark souls, and in our hearts his light enshrine. If light divine we know by divine light, nor can by any other means it see, this ties their hands from force that have the spirit. But yet, my muse, still take an higher flight, sing of platonic faith in the first good, that faith that doth our souls to god unite so strongly tightly that the rapid flood of this swift flux of things nor with foul mud can stain nor strike us off from the unity wherein we steadfast stand unshaked unmoved and grafted by a deep vitality the prop and stay of things in god's benignity when i myself from mine own self do quit and each thing else then and all spread in love to the vast universe my soul doth sit makes me half equal to all-seeing Jove. My mighty wings, high-stretched, then clapping light, I brush the stars and make them shine more bright. Close quote. The following are not without a genuine touch of fancy and poetic skill. Quote, I saw portrayed on this sky-colored silk two lovely lads with wings fully dispread of silver plumes, their skins more white than milk, their lily limbs I greatly admired, their cheery looks and lusty livelihood athwart their snowy breast a scarf they wore of azure hue. By this the sun's bright wagon gan ascend the eastern hill, and draw on cheerful day. So I, full fraught with joy, do homeward wend, and fed myself with that that nymph did say, and did so cunningly to me convey, resolving for to teach all willing men life's mystery, and quite to chase away mind-mudding mists sprung from low fulsome fen. Praise my good will, but pardon my weak faltering pen it was about this same period of his life that moore believed himself to have had a curious vision which he afterwards recounted under the name of bathynos in his divine dialogues there cannot be any reasonable doubt that he speaks of himself under the name and there is so much that is characteristic in the story it gives us such an insight into his clear confiding and enthusiastic spirit that we shall quote it at some length for its biographic significance it occurs in the third of the series of his divine dialogues he is discussing with his interlocutors the subject of the divine goodness when he informs them that he had a strange dream in his youth of an old man with a grave countenance speaking to him in a wood and on being importuned to tell his dream he agrees to do so as exquisitely and briefly as he can Extended quote. you must know then of what an anxious and thoughtful genius i was from my very childhood and what a deep and strong sense i had of the existence of god and what an early conscientiousness of approving myself to him and how when i had arrived to riper years of reason and was imbued with some slender rudiments of philosophy i was not then content to think of god in the gross only but began to consider his nature more distinctly accurately and to contemplate and compare his attributes and how partly from the natural sentiments of my own mind partly from the countenance and authority of holy scripture i did confidently conclude that infinite power wisdom and goodness were the chiefest and most comprehensive attributes of the divine nature and that the sovereign of these was his goodness the summity and power as i may so speak of the divinity in the meantime being versed in no other natural philosophy nor metaphysics but the vulgar my mind was for a long time charged with inextricable puzzles and difficulties to make the phenomena of the world and vulgar opinions of men in any tolerable way to comport or suit with these two chiefest attributes of god his wisdom and his goodness these meditations closed mine eyes at night these saluted my memory at first in the morning these accompanied my remote and solitary walks into fields and woods sometimes so early as when most of other mortals keep their beds it came to pass therefore that one summer morning, having rose much more early than ordinary, and having walked so long in a certain wood, which I had a good while frequented, that I thought fit to rest myself on the ground, having spent my spirits partly by long motion of my body, but mainly by want of sleep, and over-anxious and solicitous thinking of such difficulties as Hilo one of the speakers in the dialogues, either has already, or, as I described at first, is likely to propose, I straightway reposed my weary limbs amongst the grass and flowers at the foot of a broad-spread flourishing oak, where the gentle fresh morning air played in the shade on my heated temples, and with unexpressible pleasure refrigerating my blood and spirits, and the industrious bees busily humming round about me upon the dewy honeysuckles, to which nearer noise was most melodiously joined the distant singings of the cheerful birds re-echoed from all parts of the wood, these delights of nature all conspiring together you may easily fancy would quickly charm my weary body into a profound sleep but my soul was then as much as ever awake and as it seems did most vividly dream that i was still walking in these solitary woods with my thoughts more eagerly intent upon those usual difficulties of providence than ever but while i was in this great anxiety and earnestness of spirit accompanied as frequently when i was awake With vehement and devout suspirations and ejaculations towards God, of a sudden there appeared at a distance a very grave and venerable person walking slowly towards me. His stature was greater than ordinary. He was clothed with a loose silk garment of a purple color, much like the Indian gowns that are now in fashion, saving that the sleeves were something longer and wider, and it was tied about him with a Levitical girdle also of purple, and he wore a pair of velvet slippers of the same color but upon his head a montero of black velvet, as if he were both a traveller and an inhabitant of that place at once. While he was at any distance from me, I stood fearless and unmoved. Only in reverence to so venerable a personage, I put off my hat and held it in my hand. But when he came up closer to me, the vivid fulgor of his eyes that shone so piercingly bright from under the shadow of his black montero, and the whole air of his face, though joined with a wonderful deal of mildness and sweetness, did so of a sudden astonish me that i fell into an excessive trembling and had not been able to stand if he had not laid his hand upon my head and spoken comfortably to me which he did in a paternal manner saying blessed be thou of god my son be of good courage and fear not for i am a messenger of god to thee for thy good thy serious aspires and breathings after the true knowledge of thy maker and the ways of his providence which is the most becoming employment of every rational being have ascended into the sight of god and i am appointed to give into thy hands the two keys of providence that thou mayest thereby be able to open the treasure of that wisdom thou so anxiously and yet so piously seekest after and wherewithal he put his right hand into his left sleeve and pulled out two shining bright keys the one silver the other of gold tied together with a sky-coloured ribbon of a pretty breadth and delivered them into my hands which i received of him making low obeisance and professing my thankfulness for so great a gift." By this time, he tells us, he had acquired so much confidence and familiarity as to be able to converse with the venerable figure which had appeared to him. Having received first the silver key into his hand, he was instructed to observe the letters written on it, which, when formed into a sentence or motto, proved to be Claude fenestras ut Luceat domus. He then, holding the lower part of the key in his left hand, pulled at the handle with his right, when there came out a silver tube with a scroll of thin paper, but as strong as any vellum and as white as driven snow. On this paper was sketched what, according to his somewhat elaborate description, was obviously designed to be a representation of the motions of the planetary bodies round the sun and of the starry hemisphere, a sort of revelation of the Copernican or true system of the universe his attention was then specially drawn to the motto of the golden key which was a treasure of itself it was amor Dei Lux anime a golden tube with a similar scroll of paper disclosed itself when he pressed as before the handle of this key on which were inscribed twelve sentences written with letters of gold to such effect as the following divine goodness is commensurate with divine providence or infinite time and space the thread of time and the expansion of the universe proceed from a benevolent deity intellectual spirits rejoiced with god before creation in a world of free agents sin must be a possibility but happiness exceeds sin and misery as much as the light exceeds the shadows he was proceeding with his analysis of these divine sentences when he was rudely interrupted by the braying of two asses and the bright vision of the aged grave personage the silver and golden keys and glorious parchment suddenly vanished when he found himself sitting alone at the bottom of the oak where he had fallen asleep an ass on each side of him we confess with one of the interlocutors that we are somewhat at a loss to understand the moral of this singular interruption of his vision the ludicrous absurdity of which strikes us at first more than anything else unless it be intended as he himself half hints to signify the indifferent noisiness with which the world, and even the church, often receive and interrupt the speculations of a higher thoughtfulness, striving to read, from the charactered scroll of nature and life, the mysteries of being. More professes that the completed vision would have been too much for him, and that he was more gratified at things happening as they did, than if he had been all at once put in possession of truth, the continued search for which had been to him a repeated and prolonged pleasure. One of the speakers, a zealous but airy-minded Platonist and Cartesian, or Mechanist, suggests that the object of the vision was not merely to attest the Copernican system of the world, but the truth of Descartes' principles. But more, in the name of Bathinus, repudiates this view on the ground that he espied in one of the sentences or aphorisms of the Golden Key, which he had not time to read in full, the statement that the primordials of the world are not mechanical, but spermatical or vital which he adds is diametrically and fundamentally opposite to descartes philosophy he is convinced further that if he had had full conference with the divine sage he would have found his philosophy quote, more pythagorical or platonical than cartesian for there was also mention of the seminal soul of the world which some modern writers call the spirit of nature close quote. the aphoristic revelations both of the silver and the golden key gave rise to a great deal more discussion amongst the friends assembled in Kufa Frond's philosophical bower, a delightful retreat of the airy-minded Platonist, with the cool evening summer air fanning itself through the leaves of the arbor, and a frugal collation spread, a cup of wine, a dish of fruit, and a manchet. Footnote A small loaf of fine bread. Take, says Bacon, a small toast of manchet dipped in oil of sweet almonds, etc. End of footnote The rest was made up with free discourses in philosophy. The picture is a pleasant one, if the dialogue is sometimes tiresome, and the whole vision and description are strikingly illustrative of the dreamy, ideal enthusiasm with which the young Platonist pursued his studies and inquiries. Moore's poems, we have seen, were first published in 1642. He had previously taken his master's degree in 1639, and immediately afterwards was chosen fellow of his college. This was his first promotion and it may almost be said to have been his last. Many offers of preferment were subsequently made to him, but he persistently refused them all with one exception. Fifteen years after the restoration, or in 1675, he accepted a prebend in Gloucester Cathedral only to resign it almost immediately in favor of Dr. Edward Fowler, afterwards the well-known bishop of Gloucester. The suspicion was that moore only accepted the office in order to pass it on to fowler he patronized not only fowler but worthington whom he appointed to the rectory of ingoldsby in lincolnshire the advowson of which he had inherited from his father apparently he held this living himself for a short time but he had no love for any work beyond the gates of his college footnote ward says quote this living he was possessed of i suppose for some very short time FOR I FIND HIS NAME ONCE TO THE PUBLIC REGISTER ANNO 1642, BUT WHETHER OF HIS OWN WRITING I CANNOT CERTAINLY SAY. END OF FOOTNOTE. HE HAD NO AMBITION, AND steadily DECLINED EVERY ATTEMPT TO DRAW HIM INTO A PUBLIC POSITION. HE WOULD NOT EVEN ACCEPT THE MASTERSHIP OF HIS COLLEGE, TO WHICH IT IS UNDERSTOOD HE WOULD HAVE BEEN PREFERRED IN 1654 WHEN CUDWORTH WAS APPOINTED. OTHER OFFERS OF THE PROVOSTSHIP OF TRINITY COLLEGE, Dublin. And the deanery of st patrick's shared the same fate he had set his heart on the quiet privacy of his life as a fellow and as such he lived and died the precincts of christ's college remained his home and here it is said he had made a sort of paradise for himself noble friends importuned him the royal favor even solicited him to accept some office more worthy of his reputation pray be not so morose one noble person is represented as saying or humorsome as to refuse all things you have not known so long as Christ's college. But he was not to be moved. His friends even got him on a day as far as Whitehall, in order to the kissing of the royal hand. But when he understood that the condition of his doing so was the acceptance of a bishopric, he was not upon any account to be persuaded to it. We have often heard of the Nolo episcopari, but it is seldom it is exemplified in so simple and honest a way as this, by running away from the unwelcome offer. End of chapter 5, part 1